I know nothing, nothing. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. Please, Spock, do me a favor and don't say it's fascinating. No. But it is interesting. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today I've got more useless bits of information for you. I've also got some brain benders, mind teasers, puzzles, riddles, I'm not sure what to call them. Just little things that have fascinated me over the years and I wanted to share them with you today. I know I just recently did a trivia episode. I love trivia. That's why it's all stuck in my head and that's why I keep spouting this stuff. In the last trivia episode I did, I mentioned in passing the connection between the Roman Empire and the space shuttle. And I told you then, I'd tell you that story someday. Well, today's the day. It's one of those little bits of trivia that has stayed with me for years and has gotten more interesting over the years because of the space shuttle. That's what we call a teaser. You're going to hear that story in a few minutes. But I wanted to share some other stuff with you today as well, because my fascination wasn't limited to just trivia. I loved puzzle books. I loved riddles. I loved just gathering information. Some of it useful information. Some of it dumb information. I just loved reading that stuff. And I have books of this stuff downstairs that go back decades. I have books of information that predate me by many, many years. I know that's hard to imagine, but it's true. I have a 1949 information please guide that I picked up at an auction that just fascinates me. That's the kind of book that I collect. I have a book here. I'm going to share a couple things today from it. It's called The Public Speaker's Treasure Chest. It's a book from 1942 written by Herbert Prochnow. It's subtitled A Compendium of Source Material to Make Your Speech Sparkle. It's a bit of a manual on how to compose a speech. And it's got little jokes. It's got little one-liners. It's fascinating information to me. But that's not the only kind of book that I like. I like joke books. I like riddle books. I like puzzle books. And when I was younger, I would sit down and read them cover to cover. I'd read every little thing in there. If it was quizzes, I'd take the quizzes. If it was riddles, I'd try to solve the riddles. I just found it fascinating to have this information in front of me. And I always made it a point to try to figure these riddles out before I ever looked at the answer. Because they always had the answer. See page 49 for the answer. But before I turned to page 49, I would sit down with a pencil and paper and try to figure this stuff out. Yes, I was that geeky and weird. But that's the stuff that interested me. I have lots of these books, too. One of the ones that I remember and that I'm going to use for you today is a book called Challenge. It was nothing but puzzles and riddles in there from 1968. And yes, I hold on to these books. They come up in auction boxes. They come up at garage sales. If I see an interesting title or a fascinating topic, I grab up the book. I like stupid stuff, too. I have a book from 2009 called The Stupid History of the Human Race, and it's all about stupid stuff. I love that stuff, too, because it just confirms what I already know. We have a lot of stupid people in the world. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. Just these little bits of information, these sources of trivia, these sources of knowledge that I have that's basically been around ever since people have been writing things down. I'm not going back to the 19th century. Don't worry about that. Well, we kind of are when we go back to talk about the Roman Empire, as I mentioned, but we'll get to that. First up, we're going to talk about The Public Speaker's Treasure Chest. Now, this is a book that's all about how to write and create and craft a good speech. It's from 1942, and this is back in a time when speechifying was an important part of our lives. People would have to give presentations. People would give speeches. We didn't have the internet, of course. We didn't really have television. I mean, it existed, but it wasn't the same then as it is now. We did have radio, but again, 
not the same. People would go to gatherings, they would go to sales conventions, they would go to meetings, and presenters would be giving speeches. And if you've ever been to one of these things, you know how painfully boring they can be. There are a lot of people who just don't know how to talk. They don't know how to present a story. They don't know how to keep people's attention, even for a minute, let alone a speech of 5 or 10 or 15 minutes. And a 15-minute speech, kind of like a podcast episode, you want to keep people interested. Now, some people have a natural ability to do it, and others don't, and oftentimes those others who don't are stuck having to give a presentation, and all the rest of us are out there sitting going, oh, please, make it stop. But there are a lot of books on how to be a public speaker. I think I mentioned previously, I took a public speaking class in high school. I was always the shy, introverted, fat kid. My mother taught public speaking when she was a teacher, and she said that I should take this class because it would help me. And it was the last thing that I wanted to do, but there weren't too many electives available that I wanted to take. So I did take the public speaking class, and I loved it. That public speaking class in high school helped me discover my ham bone. As you can probably tell from the podcast, and if you've watched me on Twitch, you can definitely tell, I'm a bit of a ham. I'm still a very introverted person in a social setting. If I have to go to a company party, if I have to go meet people, if I have to go mingle, I hate it. I'm not really good at that. But if you put me on a stage, if you put me in front of a camera, if you put a microphone in front of me, I can go. I can talk. I can spiel. And it's all because I discovered that ability in the public speaking class. I had a great teacher in that class, a guy named Larry Smith. I'll never forget him. I don't even know if Mr. Smith is still with us, but because of him and because of the way he taught and encouraged me and everybody in the class, I discovered I could speak publicly. And I wasn't going to catch on fire. The world wasn't going to come to an end. I was actually going to be able to deliver my little speech and make it at least semi-interesting. And that may be one of the reasons that I'm interested in books like The Public Speaker's Treasure Chest. Because I'm always interested in how to do what I like to do even better. Now, have I ever used this book to create a speech or to craft an argument in court? Not really. But there are certain things that are in the book. I mean, like all books, it's broken into chapters. Chapter 1, how to prepare your speech. Chapter 2, how to make your speech sparkle. Chapter 3, public speaking in a nutshell. And then it breaks down into other chapters. Jokes and jests, wise cracks and epigrams, amusing definitions, interesting lives and interesting facts. Ah, now you're talking my language. Interesting lives and interesting facts? That's the kind of stuff that I love. I mean, jokes and jests, too. But the fact that all of those things are included in this book was consistent with what I learned in my public speaking class. You want to make your talk, your speech, your presentation interesting. I mean, the book is boring as hell, really. The first sentence in the book is this. Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher, once said, No great thing is created suddenly, any more than a bunch of grapes or a fig. If you tell me that you desire a fig, I answer you that there must be time. Let it first blossom, then bear fruit, then ripen. What the hell is that? I've got a book here about how to make my speech sparkle, and you're telling me about a Stoic philosopher? I'm already asleep. But remember, this is a book from 1942, and people had a different way of writing, and a different way of reading, and a different way of comprehending. What's valuable to me, and interesting to me, are the chapters about other things, like jokes and jests and puzzles and epigrams and interesting facts and interesting people. One thing I notice about a book from 1942 is the jokes and jests that were considered funny back then are things that I look at now and go, <laughs> really? You want me to put this in my speech? You want me to incorporate this one-liner? 
For instance, it documents an exchange between two hunters. The first hunter calls out, Hey, Bill. The second hunter says, Yeah. First hunter says, Are you all right? Bill says, Yeah. First hunter says, Oh, good, then I've shot a bear. I mean, it's very vaudevillian. I'm not sure how I'm working that into a speech about anything, but it's there. Or the story about the salesman going to the door and knocking and the kid answering the door and the salesman says, Hey, kid, is your daddy home? And the kid's saying, Uh, no. He hasn't been home since mom caught Santa Claus kissing the maid. I mean, yeah, I get it. But those are the kind of jokes and jests that are packed into this book. Those are the kind of things they want you to work into a speech. I mean, that's chapter four of the book. Chapter four is almost 130 pages long of one-liners. Chapter five is wisecracks and epigrams. An epigram, by the way, is a pithy saying or remark expressing an idea in a clever and amusing way. The wisecracks and epigrams are actually a little more on point and many could be used these days. For instance, many a man thinks he has an open mind when it's merely vacant. How many people do you know who that applies to? Or how about the only thing that can keep on growing without nourishment is an ego? There's also the line, friends are people who excuse you when you've made a fool of yourself, which is true. Or how about this one? The weaker the argument, the stronger the words. That's pretty much every internet debate, right? But I would take a book like that and I would page through it and I'd read it. I'd remember some of the funny lines and I'd just dismiss a lot of them. But that kind of thing always fascinated me. I loved reading that stuff. I learned words of wisdom. I learned some important dad jokes that I didn't use for many years, but now I do regularly. I learned about famous people and famous places and things they did and places they went. And it was just a wealth of information. And something about the way my mind works, I love to fill it with all of this information. As I said, I also liked puzzles and riddles and books full of those. I have a bunch of those books in my bookshelves. One that I remember from an early age, and I don't remember where we got it. An auction box, a garage sale box, I don't know. My dad was bringing boxes of books home all the time. But this was a book called Challenge. And it had visual puzzles, optical illusions, word puzzles, and riddles. And I love stuff like that. Some of them were intricate. Some of them required breaking out a pencil and a piece of paper. But some of them were just word puzzles that you kind of had to listen to really carefully to figure out. And honestly, I think some of these word puzzles helped me in my career as a lawyer because words have meaning. And if you listen carefully, you can usually find the answer to a puzzle or a riddle in the words that are used. Like one of the quizzes from the book. Very simple question. Is there any federal law against a man marrying his widow's sister? Think about that for a second. Is there any federal law against a man marrying his widow's sister? The answer is no. There's no law against a man marrying his widow's sister. However, it would be a neat trick, because for a man to have a widow, he has to be dead. See, that's the kind of thing I like. Oh, God, yes, of course. Another one along the same lines. According to international law, if an airplane crashes on the exact border between two countries, would unidentified survivors be buried in the country they are traveling to, or the country they were traveling from. And so I got to thinking, well, would the unidentified survivors be buried in the country they're traveling to, or the country they're traveling from? Why wouldn't they be buried in their home country? And then you realize, as you think about the words you just said to yourself, you don't bury the survivors anywhere. They're the survivors. And I love these puzzles that are based on the words. They make you think. Like if you had only one match and entered a cold room that contained a kerosene lamp, an oil heater, and a wood stove, what would you light first for maximum heat? And young gamer dude would be pondering, well, let's see, the light will give you light. The stove will give you heat, but the heater is a heater. And then when you look up the answer, you find out the first thing you light, of course, is the match. That's why the match is featured in the very first sentence. 
Then, of course, there's the logic-type questions. The word choice is important, too, but logic is how you resolve the puzzle. This is one of my favorite ones, and there's been variations on it over the years. But let's say my cousin wants to drive via the shortest possible route from Miami to New York. He's got to go see a specialist about his laryngitis. He can barely talk, can't afford a plane ticket, so he's driving. To make the trip, however, he's going to come to an intersection on the main road, where there's a fork to the left and to the right. One of the roads takes him directly to New York, but the other will take him far out of his way. To complicate things, there are only two people living near the fork who could tell him which one to take so that he can get to New York quickly. The two people are identical twins in every respect, except that one twin always tells the truth and one twin always lies. Now, my cousin, he knows his laryngitis is getting worse, so he doesn't want to waste his voice having a long conversation with these guys. He wants to save his voice by asking one of the twins one question to determine which is the proper road to take to New York. So the quiz is, what is the one question my cousin can ask that will absolutely disclose to him which road to take? Now, this is one of those questions that's been out there for years. It's a puzzle that's had various variations over the years. I've heard it set in medieval times. I've heard it set in the Roman Empire. I call it the one question riddle. The answer takes a little reasoning and takes a little logic, but you can get there. And here's the answer. My cousin can ask either twin. If I asked your brother which road leads to New York, what would his answer be? Now, the twin who always lies, knowing his brother always tells the truth, would lie naming the wrong road. The honest brother, knowing his brother always lies, would truthfully tell his brother's lie, again naming the wrong road. In either case, my cousin would know which was the wrong road, because each twin is going to point to the wrong road. And by asking that one question, my cousin's going to be able to figure out which is the right road to New York. And if you sit down and think about it, it makes perfect sense. Now, as much as I love the puzzles and the logic and the reasoning and the riddles, I'm also fascinated by the stupid stuff. And the stupid stuff can be really small stuff. It can also be really big stuff. The stupid stuff can be anything from the monkey in Yemen who is tried for arson, convicted, and executed by a firing squad. Yes, it happened in 1968. How stupid is that? It's a monkey. But then the big stuff, too. We all know cigarette smoking is bad for your health. We all know the federal government has spent millions of dollars on programs to convince teenagers and adults that smoking is bad for you and not healthy and you should not do it. But Congress has also authorized hundreds of millions of dollars in farm subsidies to support the nation's tobacco farmers because the tobacco farmers are losing money because of the declining cigarette sales. What sense does that make? And yet we do it. More stupid stuff? An English shipping company paid $2 million in damages to South Pacific Islanders in 1998 when its giant freighter destroyed the island's coral reef while maneuvering too close to shore. How could this happen, you might ask? Why did the ship venture out of the standard shipping channel? Well, the investigation revealed that the captain of the ship wanted a closer look at the island's topless women. Kind of an expensive peep show for that dude. So yeah, I have books and books and books of stuff with all these kinds of things in them because I love reading about it. Yes, I know I can find it on the internet, but some of these stories date back decades. And I love confirming that people have always been stupid. Now, I promised you the story about the Roman Empire and the space shuttle, and that's how we're going to finish up today. I mentioned this in passing the previous episode we did about trivia. I've actually known about the original facts of this regarding the rail lines for a long time. But it's fascinating to me how this story evolved once the space shuttle came into existence. But I got to go back to the beginning. Actually, I'm not going back to the beginning. I'm going to start in the middle. 
The middle is the U.S. standard railroad gauge. That's the distance between the rails on a railroad. You know, the metal things that the wheels of the train go on. The standard gauge in the U.S. is 4 feet 8.5 inches. If you go out there with a ruler or a tape measure, you measure between the metal rails on a railroad track, 4 feet 8.5 inches. It's a weird number, right? Why is it 4 feet 8.5 inches? Well, the U.S. railroads are based on the scale that they used in England because the English railroad designers designed the U.S. railroad. English railroads were designed by the same people who designed the pre-railroad tramways. The tramways were also on tracks. They just didn't have locomotives. And that's the gauge they used, 4 feet 8.5 inches. Well, why did the tramway designers use 4 feet 8.5 inches? Well, the people who built the tramways used the same tools and measures that they had used to build wagons. You know, the wagons and the carts that they would attach to the back of a horse. The wheels were spaced 4 feet 8.5 inches wide. Well, why did they do that? Why did they build those wagons with wheels that were 4 feet 8.5 inches wide apart? They did that because a lot of the long-distance roads in England were created over decades and centuries of carts rolling along the roads, and they established wheel ruts. The ruts in the road, the little grooves in the road where the wheels were, were four feet, eight and a half inches apart. And so the people who designed the tramways, which were based on the carts, designed the tramways the same width as the wheels on the cart because they didn't want to create new tools. They didn't want to create new axles. They had the size four feet, eight and a half inches, and so they just kept using that gauge. Well, where did these rutted roads come from that made these grooves four feet, eight and a half inches wide? Well, the roads in England, the long roads with the ruts in them, were actually designed by the Roman Empire. They built the first long-distance roads all across Europe, including England. They built them so the legions could traverse the territory. Those are the same roads that they continue to use throughout the history of England. The original ruts in those roads were formed by the Roman war chariots. So the Roman war chariots, which were used on these roads and formed the initial ruts, established the gauge of four feet, eight and a half inches. The Roman war chariots were built with that gauge, with that distance between wheels. Because it turns out that distance is just the exact distance you need to accommodate the rear end of two war horses. Because the chariots were pulled by two horses, side by side. You'd hook the horses up to the chariot, and the wheels had to be just a little bit wider than the horses, because the chariot was right behind the horses. So the Roman Empire designed its war chariots with wheels that were four feet, eight and a half inches apart. They created the rutted roads that the tramways would eventually use in England that were eventually used by the railroads that were then exported to the United States and became the gauge for the United States railway system, four feet, eight and a half inches. So the design of our railway system in the U.S. goes back to ancient Rome. Now, I know you're asking yourself, what does this have to do with the space shuttle? Because I told you this is a story about how the space shuttle is connected to the Roman Empire. Well, here's how it's connected. When you see the space shuttle on the launch pad, you know those two big booster rockets, the solid rocket boosters or the SRBs? The SRBs are made by a company in Utah. Thiokol is the name. The engineers who designed the SRBs, they wanted to make them bigger. They wanted to make them larger. But the problem was the SRBs had to be shipped by train from the factory in Utah to the launch site in Florida. The railroad line from the factory in Utah to the launch pad in Florida runs through a tunnel in the mountains. And the SRBs had to fit through the tunnel. The tunnel was slightly wider than the railroad track, enough to accommodate a train coming through, but no more. We already know that the railroad track is four feet, eight and a half inches wide, enough to fit two horses' butts through. So because of this transportation requirement, because they had to fit these SRBs through a tunnel in the mountains on a rail line that was based on a design created by the Roman Empire, 
the space shuttle had to be designed so that the SRBs would fit on a train that ran on a gauge of four feet, eight and a half inches wide. That's how the Roman Empire influenced the design of the space shuttle. Not intentionally, but because why reinvent the wheel? Or in this case, the track. I love that story so much. I just love that story. Actually, I love all of those stories. That's the kind of stuff that fascinates me. And I can get lost in those little bits of trivia, in those little stories, in those little riddles. I can get lost in that stuff for hours. Don't worry, I've got tons of books of this stuff. We'll be talking about it again. But for now, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being here. As always, I can't thank you enough for all the time you spend listening to these episodes. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves. And I'll see you when I see you.